Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Okay, today, everybody, you're sitting in on a membership class, but it relates to what we've been doing as far as the confession. So, um, I don't, both of the elders are out of town again this Sunday, and so we had to combine our Sunday school classes, and I had scheduled a membership class for this time, and so we are plugging forward with the membership class, but we're talking about Uh, doctrine, which we have been talking about in our adult Sunday school class. We've been working chapter by chapter through the Westminster Confession of Faith. And some people find that strange that we would work through a confession of faith rather than working through Scripture, right? Well, we are what's called a confessional church, right? We believe that confessions which are merely summaries of Scripture, are good fences that churches need to build. And if you say you don't have a confession, you have a confession. If you say no creed but Christ and no book but the Bible, you've got a confession. It just means that whoever has the strongest voice in your church is the one who will set the confession for the church. Well, we have a confession that's 400-some years old, and we, um, we believe and teach, as we've been doing for the past however many 30 weeks, we believe and teach that that confession is a uh, faithful summary of Scripture, and yet subordinate to the Scriptures, right? We don't... The, we don't, uh, there's a difference between the Word of God and a confession. The Word of God is inerrant and infallible and unchangeable. The confession is errant, fallible, and changeable. Okay, because it being the words of man and the summaries of Scripture by man and not the Scriptures itself. And so right at the beginning of our constitution defined for Evangel Presbytery, is this statement, the constitution of evangel presbytery, which is subject to and subordinate to the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, the infallible word of God, consists of its doctrinal standards set forth in the Westminster Confession of Faith, together with the larger and shorter catechisms, the book of church order, which comprises the form of government, the rules of discipline, and the directory for worship, And the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, all as adopted by the Presbytery. Okay, so we have five confessions that we hold to, or one confession and four creeds that we hold to, and those are constitutional. If you were male and called into leadership of the church, you would have to subscribe to those confessions and creeds. In other words, you would have to say, I support and believe that those are faithful summaries of Scripture, and you would have to take vows to that end. You would have to know those. You would be examined on your knowledge of those creeds and confessions. And so, why do we do that? I mean, what, what is the purpose of of being a confessional and creedal church. Any ideas? Any thoughts? Yeah, Zandy. Honesty. Honesty. We lay out before you as thorough as, as we can what we believe. Instead of hiding, instead of making up on the fly, instead of, you know, um, your doctrine of your church being in a black box that no one can look into. Our, our doctrinal beliefs are set forward in the Westminster Confession and those four old, ancient creeds of the church that have been confessed through the ages. And so we have a... You know, I'm just going to start giving reasons. 
but um, I want to I defer to people in the membership class during the Sunday school. Any other thoughts on why we, are a confe- why we would want to be a confessional church? Yeah, Davey. Okay, acts as a fence. Keeps you on the right track doctrinally. It is accountability, right? Everybody who comes into the church, as far as officers of the church, have to know and uphold those doctrines. And why? Because we think it's a faithful summary of Scripture. We think it's the teaching of Scripture. To be a member of the church... You don't have to hold to the Westminster standards. You have to have a credible profession of faith. Okay? There's a different tier, right? It will be the doctrines you learn. It will be the content of the teaching and preaching of the church. It will be what, what seeps into you through the, the teaching ministry of the church. But only officers must subscribe. Members merely need to know that this is what will be taught and they must have a credible profession of faith as determined by the elders. Okay, so there's that. What, uh, any, any other reasons why confessionalism is helpful and good? Keeps us unified, right? It contributes to the unity of the church. Yeah, yeah, we know what the doctrine's going to be. We, we can go and look at a concise statement. We can know where we have trouble with it, right, and work on that area, right? And, and it does lead to the unity of the church. Other thoughts? Um. It gives potential new members a quick way to learn what's going to be taught in the church. That's good. And that's helpful. Right? It's not a mystery. And you don't have to sit down and um, pick the brain of the senior pastor. You go to the confessions. And the senior pastor, if he's being faithful, has to be teaching those doctrines. Right? Um, He has made vows to do so. And so it's not a personality-driven church or a papacy, right? It's confessional. We, it's like, it's like um, the, the United States is a, is a um, has laws, right? The laws rule over even the president and everybody. It's, a, it's the rule of law is, and that's what our confessions are. They, that, it's, the, it's the doctrinal summary. And so um, we're, not, uh, we're not a personality-driven church. We're a, a doctrinally-driven church. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's fine. They're not members yet. <laughs> Potential. <laughs> I know, I know. Yes. It is very important, and there, the, the scriptures are not, the scriptures, like it says in 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes to Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you, that good deposit, right? And so, that good deposit is a system of doctrine contained in the scriptures 
and, um, and confessions allows to summarize that. The last thing I would mention is confessions are apologetic. It's an easy, it's like a, a ready reference. You know, what do we believe on, you know, the, the final state of the soul? Well, there's a whole chapter in the confession on it. What do we believe about the sacraments? What do we believe about marriage and divorce? What do we, you know, and you can go to it and you can say, okay, here's what we believe. Here's the summary of our doctrine. That's, that's wonderful to be able to do that. And um, yes, that is a work of interpreting Scripture. But think of having to interpret Scripture every time if you only have the Bible to give someone as a summary of Scripture, right? Like, here's our, here's our doctrine, and you put a Bible in front of them. Right? It's really complicated, right, to have to work through all of that. Well, they've done a lot of the work and given you a concise summary of, it's like a systematic theology, right? Concise summary of Scripture's teaching. And then you can work from there back to the Scriptures and say, okay, I see what they're saying here, or okay, that seems like a weird scripture reference for that point. That's not as strong as this one, you know, and, and, um, and you can, in a sense, pick apart the confessions. Confessions are changeable. Um, I think there are chapters of the confession that should be added because of the contemporary nature of life. We need a, we need a chapter on technology. We need a chapter on abortion. Right? We need a chapter or life and fruitfulness. Right? We need, we need a chapter um, because Scripture speaks to those things. Right? Technology would be so helpful because right now we're all drowning as we adopt technology that we haven't thought through theologically. Right? We've, all adapt, we've all adopted technology without thinking through the theological implications and how it's changing us. And we should do that with the help of, um, obviously, Scripture first, but then all the, also people who are thinking through this. Scholars are thinking through the effect of technology. Some of you have probably read books on how your phone is affecting your brain. You know, If you haven't, you should. Um, so anyway, there, so we can add to the confessions. Um, it's hard to do it, though. We make it in the Constitution very hard to change the confession because we don't want it like, oh, with a, with a majority vote at one presbytery, we can gut the whole confession. No. To change the confession in Evangel Presbytery, um, you have to have a, a supermajority vote at one Presbytery, then it goes to the sessions, and three quarters of the sessions have to vote in favor of it, and then it goes to a subsequent presbytery meeting where there has to be another three-quarter vote. So it's hard to do, and that's purposeful. It's hard to make constitutional amendments. Why? Because, well, you don't want a whole ton of amendments, right? Um, you want it to be hard, and you want there to be a, a generally a consensus wrought um, through the, in those big changes. Okay. Any questions about, that is just a, I mean, that's why we're doing a Sunday school class on the Westminster Confession of Faith, because we're a confessional church, and we want you to know and believe and rest in the doctrines that are taught in Scripture, and uh, the Westminster is a faithful summary. And those other creeds, don't forget those. The Apostles' Creed is fundamental Christianity. Right? The church through the ages have, have confessed that creed. And then the lesser known, Chalcedonian. The Chalcedonian creed is a formulation of the, uh, the union of the natures of, of Christ. You know, it, And so it's so important. And the Athanasian creed is Trinitarian doctrine. And... Um, and so, and the Nicene Creed, we've been confessing as we come to the Lord's table at the beginning of each month, right? We did the Apostles' Creed for a while. We changed it to the Nicene Creed. The Nicene and the Apostles are close. The Nicene is a bit more filled out. But it's summarizing the teaching of Scripture. And so we use these things um, for all those things we said. Any questions about that?
All right. So you picked up a sheet on the way in. I kind of want to work through that. And this is to get into our doctrine just a bit and who we are. So we'll start with the biggest umbrella. We're Christian and not pagan. We are not a pagan church. It should not be news to you. Um, we, don't, we don't hug trees and worship stars. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ. Okay, so we are Christian, not pagan, and, and uh, we pull that from the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is such fundamental Christianity that if you depart from basically any point of the, of the Apostles' Creed, you have just moved off the reservation of the Christian reservation, and you've moved into paganism. Okay, you've moved into atheism, whatever. Um, Roman Catholics, Eastern, or well, sort of, the Eastern tweak it a little bit, um, you know, and, and Baptists and, and Presbyterian churches all confess the, the Apostles' Creed. And it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Fundamental doctrine. Right, and then it goes through Jesus, and then it goes through the Holy Spirit. Okay, Trinity. Deny the Trinity, you've moved out of Christianity and into paganism. All right, if you're a modalist, you're not a Christian, right? God was Father, and then He was Jesus, and then He was the Holy Spirit. That's modalism, that is a, a terrible heresy. And to believe, if you believe it, you are not saved. And it goes on, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so the, the conception of Christ by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, okay, born of a virgin, virgin birth, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, all the humiliation of Christ. He descended into hell. There's a lot of controversy over that statement. Some, modern, uh, some moderns don't confess that part of the creed. Uh, Calvin's explanation of that portion of the Apostles' Creed is best. Calvin said, well, no, hell was the cross. He descended into hell on the cross. What is the cross? The cross is bearing the wrath of God. That's what hell is. It's the bearing of the wrath of God. So all punishment against sin was on his shoulders on the cross, and so I think it's perfectly proper that we, we say he descended into hell, although I don't believe there was a physical descent into a space called hell. That was the cross. He was forsaken there by his father, right? He, he, um, and so the cross is hell. You can read Calvin's Institutes on that if you want more. And then we get the resurrection. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended his ascension into heaven, sits on the right hand, the session of Jesus, sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead, the second, the return of Christ. All condensed in there is really good Christology, really good doctrine of Christ, right? Conceived by the Spirit, born of a virgin, was humiliated in his death, he suffered on the cross, he rose, he ascended, he sits in session, and he will come again. All of those you have to believe, teaching of Scripture. And then it concludes with a statement on the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's what it says. That's all you get on the Holy Spirit in the Apostles' Creed, right? The de development of doctrine of the Holy Spirit would come in time believe in the Holy Catholic Church, right? That does not say Holy Roman Catholic Church. It just says Catholic, and little c Catholic means there's a worldwide church. There's a church around the world. Catholic just means universal, um, worldwide. Believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And it concludes with an Amen. Right? So that's the Apostles' Creed. To confess that, 
To believe that makes you a Christian. It takes you out of the camp of the atheists, the pagan, the um, God-hater. And then coming in in a notch um, is the next level. We're evangelical, not liberal. Evangelical in the historical sense, not evangelical in the Jerry Falwell sense. Okay, Evangelical in the historical sense is those committed to the evangel, right? Evangel, presbytery. The evangel, the gospel, the good news, right? It's the, the, the message of salvation. And liberal, so let's contrast it. Evangelicals say that God is a person. The liberal says that God is a... I thought Willie was answering there for a second. Sweet. What's that? Woman? Some do. I mean, at least they use feminine names for this entity that they think God is. Right? God is a force. God is a power. God is an idea. But not a person. Right? No personhood to that force. Just a sort of um, non-personal entity. Evangelicals teach that man willfully disobeyed God's commands and thereby became worthy of death. Man is a sinner. The liberal says what about man? Basically good, you know. Good until they see somebody do bad and then they have a tendency to imitate the bad. But not intrinsically. It's only learned behavior that we do bad. It's not sin in us. It's not indwelling sin. There is no original sin. There is no corruption passed on from from man to man. Um, Evangelicals believe Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God and became man. What about the liberal? He's just a man. Totally just a man. He was smart. He said some pithy things. Right, he, he, he laid down some nice proverbs, some rules to live by. Smart dude, um, showed us an example of suffering. Really good example of what it means to suffer. But not, not the eternal Son of God taking on flesh. Okay? Evangelicals teach that salvation from sin comes to us not by our good works, but by receiving the free gift of God by faith. Okay? Free gift of God by faith. You are not saved by your works. Works have no power to save you. They cannot give you the merit that is necessary to make God pleased with you. Right? How does the liberal contrast with that? How do they see salvation? What's that? I've lived, a good life. I've lived a good life. I've done fairly well. Yeah, and there's like no perception of the holiness of God and how terribly you've actually done, right? Yeah, and they, they boast in their works, right? No matter how small those works, those works are enough to impress a semi-holy God, right? Or a, for, a God-like force that has no personality. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, evangelicals teach that Scripture is the Word of God. What does the liberal say about the Word of God? It's written by man, but is, aren't, weren't the Scriptures written by man? They were written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit, God Himself. And they're like, well, maybe sometimes, you know, 
Maybe the Word of God at, at some places is inspired, but certainly not all of it. You know, especially not the stuff about wives submitting to their husbands. Right? Um, scripture is the Word of God. We believe it is it comes from the very mouth of God. It's breathed out and, it's, and it is inspired. And then finally, evangelicals say prayer is a genuine conversation with our Creator and Redeemer. God hears us when we pray. He is listening. He doesn't have ears, but He hears, right? And He, is, he hears them and perceives our prayers. He knows our prayers even before we say them. And the liberal says what about prayer? self-referential. It's like, it's, it's meditative, it's, yeah, it's, it's like centering yourself. It, you know, if God is, is not personal and not personally interested and he's just a force, then you just got to sort of tap into the force. And you do that through meditation. I mean, it's a very Eastern, Eastern sort of uh, thinking. Um, Buddhist. A Zen. So, um, prayer is actual conversation with the Creator. He hears our prayers. He answers. He delights to hear His people cry out to Him. All right, so coming down even a further notch from we are Christian, we're evangelical, we're Protestant, not Roman Catholic. Okay? We are intentionally Protestant, not Roman Catholic. This takes us back to the time of the Reformation, our history in that 16th century uh, attempt at reforming the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church would not have it, so the reformers were forced, therefore, to separate from the Roman Catholic Church so that they might maintain the purity of the Word of God in the church. And, and so the five solas of the Reformation sort of sum up what um, Protestants uh, believe in contrast to Roman Catholic. And I'll just take a couple of these. First of all, the rallying cry of the, of the Reformation was sola scriptura. You know that, right? Sola scriptura. Why was that the rallying cry of the Reformation? The Scripture alone, that's all that means, Scripture alone. Why did they need to say that? Okay, that's, that's interesting, yeah. Um, they, the Roman Catholic Church used to lock their Bibles to the pulpits, right? And this was not a time when everybody had books. Books were very expensive, during the time of the Reformation, a uh, guy that just lectured to us on Calvin said that a Bible would cost about what a cow costs, which is about a thousand bucks today, you know? Imagine giving over a thousand dollars to have one copy of the Scripture, you know? And that was a hundred years after Gutenberg's press came into, well, 70, 75 years after Gutenberg press. And so books are very expensive, but but the, the um, Roman Catholic Church would not allow it to be translated into languages that people actually spoke. They kept it in the Latin, and they would chain their Bibles to the pulpit so that they didn't get out among the riffraff. And, um, and the, the, the 16th century internet called the Gutenberg Press got the Bible out everywhere. In the vernacular tongue, what was one of the first things Luther did when he went into hiding? He translated the Bible into German. That had been going on way before that in English. Um, John Huss had been doing that um, previously. Wycliffe, Tyndale, um, you know, were, were doing this. Tyndale was at the time of the Reformation, but Wycliffe, who had been translating the Bible into English, was like 14th century, Okay. And so, um, aiming for understanding, but, but again, why, why this push for Scripture in the, in the you know, vernacular tongue? Well, 
like Okay. Okay. They had added, they had added a whole ton of extra scriptural commands. You know, praying the rosary and those acts of penance and making things sacraments that Christ had never commanded, right? And 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 so and and how did they do that? How did those things come about? Well, because the magisterium of the church decided that scripture didn't say enough on this, and so we're going to come along and we're going to tell you what is godliness and what is supposed to be done. And so the voice of the magisterium on, on, on those things that deal with faith and practice became equivalent to the scriptures. And that's why they say they put tradition and scripture on a level. Right? Well, the reformers came along and said, no. Why in the world would we put the word of man at the same level as what is inspired and breathed out of the mouth of God? That seems like a recipe for all kinds of abuses in the church, all kinds of laying on people's shoulders the commandments of men which will lead them to hell, right? And so it was Scripture alone. We're going to decide if it's not in Scripture, it's not a doctrine that we're going to espouse. Everything is going to be determined by the Word of God alone. Huge concept, right? That's the Reformation in a nutshell. And then all the Protestants got together and fought about the interpretation of Scripture and never got on the same page when it came to sacraments. And the Roman Catholic Church said, ha ha, see? And the Protestants were like, who cares? Who cares? Of course it's going to lead to division. We're fallible interpreters of an infallible document. Okay? We're not lying to people and saying that we're infallible interpreters of an infallible document. We're fallible interpreters. We are. And we're going to argue and argue and argue about some things like the presence of Christ in the Lord's table. And we're going to continue arguing about those things. And... um, And we're going to continue going to the source to come up with arguments for that, which is the Word of God alone. We're not going to lean on the church fathers and their weird views, right? We're going to lean on Scripture alone. We may read the church fathers and appreciate their interpretations and learn from it and study it, but at the end of the day, it will be founded on Scripture alone. And so, I mean, you go down these other ones to the, the, the glory of God alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. I mean, sola fide, huge concept. How are you saved? Are you saved by your works? Are you saved by a combination of works and faith? Or are you saved by faith alone? Anybody want to answer? You better know the answer or I'm not doing my job well. Faith alone. You are saved by grace through faith, and that is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? You were saved by faith. Um, That was condemned as heretical by the Council of Trent shortly after the, the Reformation was underway, right? Justification by faith alone, those who declare justification by faith alone should be anathema. They are anathema. That's what the Council of Trent, which is still the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church today, has not been overturned or changed. They say no, those who teach justification by faith alone are anathema. Damned. So they've declared every Protestant who holds to justification by faith alone damned. And, I, and, and you, you think about that, and you think about all those attempts, all those ecumenical dream fests where weak Protestants want to reunite with the Roman Catholic faith. Well, fine. They just have to overturn all of the Council of Trent. And maybe God would do that. You know, maybe God will be merciful at some point and bring in a, a, a pope who uh, the first thing he does is, is undermine his own power 
and submit the church to Scripture. You know, and maybe, but, but there would have to be, for any sort of, I mean, that is such a fundamental tenet of our, uh, of Scripture, that there would have to be a wholesale repentance before there could be any reunion on that point specifically about justification, about how someone is declared righteous in the sight of God. You know, for now it's water and oil. Okay, so jumping down even closer, we are reformed, not Arminian or dispensational. We're reformed. We believe, you know, we believe in the teachings of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith teaches covenant theology. We believe that Scripture, God, God spoke to us in such a way that uh, through covenants in Scripture. And that's the best way to understand His interaction with us through the ages, is these promises and contracts and and covenants that he's made with man, okay? And so we teach covenant theology and not dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is like at one point in history, people are saved this way, and in the next dispensation, people are saved this way, and, and the church is saved one way, and the Jews are saved another way, and, and covenant theology is like, no, no, we've always just been saved by faith in Christ, right from the beginning, all through the ages. Abraham was justified by faith. That's how it's gone on all through the ages. And so there's, um, and we're not, and and then as far as soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, how are we saved, um, we're reformed, not Arminian. And I mean, again, there's so much that could be said about that. But to be reformed, the, as far as soteriology, you've heard teaching on tulip, right? We like to, we like to tip our hat to the Dutch uh, with the tulip acronym where there was much uh, fecundity as far as reformed faith. And so, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Now, which one do you want me to talk about? Because we only have time for me to talk about one. Limited atonement. Well, they all hang together, so you can't talk about one without talking about all five. Right? If man is dead in his sins, that's the whole premise of total depravity. Man cannot do any spiritual good. Man cannot earn merit that puts God in his debt. He's totally depraved, and all he ever does is, you know, continually sin. Okay? And so if you're dead in your sins, then, then what needs to happen before you are saved? You've got to be made alive. But you're dead. So are you going to do it through your own efforts? Dead men don't do much. Right? You can't do it through your own efforts, so God must act. That's the whole point of Reformed theology. God does what we cannot do. That's Reformed theology. It's that simple. God does what we cannot do. That's why it's called the doctrines of grace. Right? We're dead in our sins, and yet there's God making us alive and regenerating us and giving us life, right? resuscitating us on so many levels, and then sanctifying us, washing us off all the filth, right? adopting us into his household, and then like going, sending Jesus who atones for our sins, and then going, he's going before us to create a place for us to live, and we go live there in the presence of God forever. All God's doing. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. But if you were half alive, I mean, you could have taken some credit and you could have worked your way into heaven. Which is what Arminians generally, what it boils down to. Right? It may be only one work, but it's that work of choosing God. But you're dead. You're dead. You're dead, you're dead, you're dead. 
You're dead as a doornail. Right? There is no life in you. But the Arminian says, no, it's not much life. We just need to choose God. And we say, no, God must choose us. And that's what he's done in election. And who died on the cross? That's limited atonement. Christ died for his elect. He did not die potentially for the whole world. He died effectually for his people. So it was 100% effective, not 68% effective based upon who chooses and who doesn't. You see how that hangs together with the reformed doctrine of total depravity? And then irresistible grace, if God calls you, how in the world can you resist God? Who resists God? No one, right? And then perseverance of the saints is a, is a theological doctrine that those who are elect will persevere in faith to the end, okay? It may look like a lot of people fall away, but that's because you don't know who's elect and who's not. I don't know who's elect and who's not. None of us know. God alone knows who's elect and who's not. But the elect will persevere to the end. All right, so um, four more minutes, all right? And then going down even further to um, doctrine, we're evangel presbytery. We're not the PCA. We're not the ARP. We're not the PCUSA. We're not the split P's of Presbyterianism. There are a lot, of, a lot of different denominations that are Presbyterian. We were PCA, and then 20 years before that, we were RPCES, Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. Uh, 1982, we came into the PCA. Before that, we were a couple churches that combined, and we're ju we just found the old minutes from this, the 70s. It was really interesting. Couple churches from the area combined. I think one was a Bible church, one was Walnut Grove Presbyterian Church, and um, and then determined to come into the RPCES. Or one of them may have already been in the RPCES, like the Walnut Grove. And so I need to read that history just to find out. But uh, we're now an Evangel Presbytery. We're boringly Presbyterian. We're Westminsterian. We. Um, we do allow an exception on timing and mode of baptism. We think it's godliness to, uh, and, and godliness to, um, to allow the uh, churches and officers to take an exception on timing and mode of baptism. That's, a, that's the fancy way of saying we allow Reformed Baptists uh, in the denomination as well. And we have a... Uh, we have a couple Reformed or Baptist churches in the denomination, and it's been wonderful. It really has. Um, we, have we hold so much in common. But those, those credo-Baptist brothers, do. we are Westminsterian. We chose one confession. We didn't want a bi-confessional uh, denomination where like, they could choose the London Baptist Confession which is basically the Baptist version of the Westminster, and or the Wa Westminster. We said, no, we're Westminster, and we're allowing credo-baptists to take an exception on timing and mode of baptism. Timing, you know, when you get baptized, and mode, how you do it. Like dunking versus pouring versus sprinkling. Those are the three modes, Right? And, um, and that's that. So, any questions about any of this? this? This is a huge, broad overview of our doctrine, why we're confessionalists. And uh, we even have a non-constitutional a non, um, confession, which is our commitments. Again, it's just a quick way for visitors to get to know what we teach on our website with those commitments. I handed them out to the class last time. Any thoughts or questions or concerns or like, what's up with that? 10. There are six particularized churches, four church plants, and a couple more church plants 
are in the initial stages of work. So um, haven't even, I mean, um, we're praying that there will be others that come in. Our growth will be through church plants. I, I think that's where the growth of Evangel Presbytery is coming. We do want Evangel Presbytery to grow, but it will be through church planning and probably not through half of the PCA leaving the PCA and coming into Evangel Presbytery, <laughs> which would be a trouble. <laughs> yeah, Greg. Why did we leave the PCA? We left the PCA because of the creeping liberalism of the PCA. Uh, the, the PCA has been for five years unable to discipline a, an openly homosexual pastor in Missouri Presbytery. And there's a whole movement through Covenant Seminary called Revoice, which is um, a uh, trying to... Um, allow for same-sex attraction as sort of a neutral thing. And, uh, and so it's, it's the creeping homosexualist agenda in the PCA. And also the PCA was becoming a top-heavy denomination. Presbyterianism is grassroots. It's, it's, you know, sessions have the power. The upper courts serve the lower courts. And when the upper courts start dictating to the lower courts what they must do, then you're sort of abandoning the Presbyterian principle. And um, there are all kinds of committees and commissions being formed denominationally that are, um, you know, acting like Darth Vader, <laughs> choking those sessions, <laughs> you know. It's a denomination. We just have one presbytery. I mean, at some point, if it grows and we have a diversity of churches in certain areas, we would multiply presbyteries. And then we'd have to figure out what we call the whole and what the presbyteries are going to be called and stuff. But, it, I mean, if we had enough churches and there's growth, then we would have, then having everybody in one presbytery would get too cumbersome, and so we would split those presbyteries, and then every year we would have what's called a general assembly, where all the churches get together once a year, presbyteries get together three times a year, and sessions get together once a month. I guess, I guess. No, we're just, we were just focused on getting this initial structure up. If God brings growth, we'll figure out what to do as he does, you know. Are there differences there from the PCA? No, like in terms of evangel and PCA, is the only difference like on paper? No, we have a huge section in our Book of Church Order on sexuality, which it's, um, it's really helpful. And so that's, that's present, that's a big difference. But our, the Book of Church Order of Evangel Presbytery was taken from the 1933 PCUS Book of Church Order, which became the PCA Book of Church Order. And then we borrowed a lot from the PCA Book of Church Order because it was good, good polity, right? And so, and they gave us permission to do so. We didn't just steal it. And so, it's an amalgam of those different sources, but we, on the timing and mode, we have a chapter, we have a whole chapter on sexuality to try and shore up, you know, marriage and and homosexuality, and, uh, and that definitely is something that the PCA needs, but it's too late. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the PCA, the directory for worship, is not constitutional, except for the one part that we got out of our session to get be constitutional, which is a statement that um, in the solemnization of marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman. So if you go to the PCA and they, you read at the beginning of the, the confession, that, um, that originated from our session. We wanted the whole chapter. They gave us one sentence, but, which is funny, but... Um, our, our directory for worship is constitutional, meaning that we have to abide by what it says, and we will be held to account for it. And the PCA worship, the directory for worship is not constitutional, which is kind of weird. The underlying intent is to be able to um, live together in the same denomination while having differing views on timing and mode of baptism really is to allow Baptists and Pado-Baptists to work together um, and to put flesh on the bone of that unity, right? Every other denomination, PCA, Southern Baptists, will have Presbyterians fill their pulpits, speak at their conferences, um, come to their churches and preach in their, you know... Um, Lead, lead committees and whatnot, but they don't have fellowship over the sacraments. We think that grieves the Lord, and that's a debate that's gone on for 400 years is not likely to be concluded, and so we are trying to bring peace on that question, even though we'll continue to argue about it. I mean, we had a speaker at New Geneva Academy's conference last week, and he's a Reformed Presbyterian from the RPCNA church, another split P. And, um, you know, he was reading about Evangel Presbyterian, he noted that, and then, you know, every time he mentioned baptism, he said the proper, um, the proper baptism of baptizing infants, you know, just, and then he'd be like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know. And, and, you know, there's a good camaraderie over that, and, uh, and yet we want, we want unity, though even in our doctrinal statements we say uh, we will continue to, we, we know one's right and one's wrong, and we will continue to debate it, but we want unity in the churches. We have 99.9% .9 of doctrine in common. Timing of baptism is what separates the American church. Think about that. I got to stop. I mean, we're way past. Each church can declare what their leaders are going to be. They could be a mix of Presbyterian and Baptist. They could be Baptist only. They could be Presbyterian only. And we've declared to be Presbyterian only in our leadership. That's where we are. Yep. All right, we got to stop. Let's pray. Thanks. Father, we bless your holy name. We thank you for your church. What a joy it is to be with brothers and sisters in unity. We pray you would protect our unity, that you would grow it, that we would love one another. And Father, as we come into worship, help us to set our minds on the things above, not the things of this earth. Uh, reveal your face to us. Show us your Son. Work the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.